Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This show is produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, we spoke with Joe Kent. Joe is a retired Green Beret and veteran of the global war on terror. He's a father, gold star husband, and congressional candidate for Washington's third district. Whenever anybody would talk about transition, I would just be like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. You know, I just didn't take it seriously. I, I, I had this career path lined out where I would start another career in the intelligence world, and I got to continue to play commando and be a badass. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. All right, we're set. Are we ready to go finally? <laughs> yeah. All right. It's like, uh, so it's only 10 past the hour. We, uh, our favorite thing is just working out audio issues. It would be infinitely easier if we had a studio, but, uh, we have to deal with this virus for like a year now. Anyway, thanks. To, so thanks for being on Joe. I yeah, know absolutely. that uh, we only got, yeah, we only got put in touch like a week ago, but it's from like a great buddy of mine, uh, who had nothing but like great things to say about you. So, uh, I took, I took full advantage of being able to make that connection. No, that's great, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I think it was the same day that you announced your candidacy, which we'll get into yeah. uh, a bit later, uh, yeah. of, of course. But we have to, of course, set a baseline first. Um, but I, I, anyway, I, uh, my buddy Brighton, I'm very, we've been pretty close for a while and I'm pretty close to his family and everything. And I said, uh, you know, hey, tell me what, uh, tell me what you can about Joe, because I like to dig up a little dirt on everyone before they come on. And really all he had to say was like, you know, <laughs> I, cu- I couldn't love Joe any more than I already do. He's a great guy. He's a great family guy. That was it. We talked a little bit more about uh, some of the details, but like, um, yeah, I mean, I-, I think you just come off on on people. They want to be around you. They want to like you. So hopefully that helps you in the race. <laughs> Let's hope so. Yeah, no, it's that's good to hear, especially coming from a guy, a guy like Brighton. So I take that as a, a high compliment. Are you a uh, are you like a Portland original guy or like a Washington State? So I'm a Portland original guy. I was uh, born just south of Portland in a little little logging town called Sweet Home Oregon, and then uh, spent most of my childhood in in Portland. Sweet Home Oregon. Yeah, Sweet Home Oregon. Yep. I love the names of places as you get like farther west. Yeah. Right one, at- so I'm from New. <laughs> yeah, I'm from, I'm from New England, and everything's just named after some old shit in England. Yeah. So, but when you go out west, you get like, have you ever been to like Truth or Consequences, New Mexico? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty, like, pretty uh, original naming. Dude, it's like from, it's like straight out of a western. They're like, what do we call this place? Well, don't fuck with us. It's called Truth or Consequences. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, what was that like growing up there? You said it was like a small logging town. Yeah, so I, I moved out of there pretty young. Um, my folks were working for the Forest Service when I was born and putting themselves through college and then law school. And then, uh, so living in Eugene, which is where University of Oregon is, was like my first memories. And then we uh, we moved to Portland when I was like, I think five. So mostly a Portland guy. The Forest Service, what's that like? Both of your parents? Uh, my dad and then my mom was actually working as a at a, at a grocery store there before they got into into law school. Okay. Oh, so both your parents are lawyers, huh? They are. Yeah. What's it like uh, coming home, not doing your homework? High, high standards, man. I mean, I, I think uh, maybe maybe that's what sort of drove me into the military. My parents were, you know, very, very uh, had a very academic path. I mean, they had a little break, a little deviation there with uh, going to the Forest Service. But yeah, they were they were big on school, and I was big on GI Joe and the A Team and playing Army in the Woods. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard you say you're like one of those. 
people who just always wanted to be a soldier from like the earliest you can remember. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, I don't remember ever seriously considering anything else. I think maybe when I was like really little, I wanted to be a, I don't know, you know, a dinosaur or something. But as, as far as I can remember to be like serious about what I wanted to be when I, when I grew up, it was some form of a commando. So, you know, reading books and comic books and stuff like that. Is that from being somewhere that lets you like spend a lot of time outside and then you just get like something that naturally you know, got you interested in like the commando life? Was it books? Was it just, you know, never wanting to grow up, that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, I think some combination of all the, the, the Pacific Northwest is just an awesome place to grow up. So you can spend most of your time outside in the mountains. We got beaches, we got deserts. So I got really involved in Boy Scouts pretty young. So we did Cub Scouts, then Boy Scouts. And when I was growing up, it was a really strong like scouting community. We had uh, a couple of military veterans that ran the local Boy Scout troop. And they ran that thing like pretty super mili- paramilitary, I think. They kind of let us run around and be led by the older boys. And we shot guns. We built bone arrows and wore camouflage and pretty much just like played army. So I think between that and then just reading comic books and then trying to do my own research at libraries on on the military as I got further further down the road, like in high school, I kind of just was like, hey, I'm going to join some branch of the service at some point to try and be some kind of a, a commando guy. I had not shot a gun till I went to basic training. Cause I'm like a city kid from the Northeast. Yeah, really? So I had kind of like, yeah, yeah. I didn't have as much like, uh, you know, uh, or, you know, lead time as you, I didn't have my outdoor skills honed. <laughs> I had like, you know, cities, I had city slicking down, but, um, yeah, I didn't grow up with all that stuff, but I kind of like, it's cool listening to other people who, you know, had like, that kind of upbringing. I'm sure that you try to instill that kind of stuff in your kids now, right? Oh yeah. We live out in kind of the sticks right now. So they're they're outside right now. They're, they're outside as much as, as much as possible. My oldest would like probably live outside if I let them. So it's a, yeah, it's just a great environment for little boys, ample places to build forts and swimming creeks and all that stuff. So yeah, it's a great environment. That's awesome. So you came in as like a pre nine 11 guy, right? I did. I joined in uh, 98. So not a lot going on in 98. Oh, well, I mean, it was like five years after Mogadishu. It was like yeah. seven years after Desert Storm and, you know, yep. Panama, Grenada, like <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Not the endless wars that we're used to, but, yeah. um, you know, you had like these few and far between things to go off. Did you did any of that like further influence you to like choose the path that you chose? Because you were a yeah. ranger before you went SF, right? Yeah, exactly. So it, it really did. Um, the 1993 Black Hawk Down, so the battle, the gun battle in uh, Mogadishu was, it was like I think the first major news event that I really remember being really really moved by. I I was in like I think fifth grade when Desert Storm happened, and so I remember watching that and all the ooh and ah about GPS guided missiles. But watching the aftermath of Mogadishu watching the American bodies getting drunk through the streets of the, the Bukhari market and all that. I, I was like, wow, there's, this is pretty amazing that we live here in peace back in America. And there's guys that are over engaged in like savage combat on the streets right now. So I, I had already kind of been aware of the Ranger regiment. I don't think I knew anything about Delta or any of the other more spooky units that were there at the time, but I read a little bit about the Ranger regiment and, and kind of saw some of their lineage and, I was already bothering recruiters by then. So I was like 13 and they, they would humor me and like give me a poster or a t-shirt, you know? Cause I was like, so can I really join? Do I have to graduate high school? And they're like, they're like, yeah, you actually have to graduate high school. 
you know, but after that, I, uh, I talked to some recruiters and they were like, yeah, that's a, that's a unit that you can enlist for. And if you go there as an infantryman, like you'll be, you'll be in the thick of it if they get back into, back into the mix. So that kind of set me on the trajectory I went on in the military. We've talked about that before, like the decision, whether to get your GED early or actually graduate high school. And I forget who it was, Ben, I don't know if you remember, but, uh, some, I was like, uh, I asked my recruiter, I'm like, hey, can I just get like a GED and like go like a year early? He's like, no, you should probably graduate high school. So, you know, thanks. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Sergeant Revel. Uh, if you're listening, yeah. probably not. But uh, yeah. And then uh, someone else. Was it Nelson? Who? No, it may have been someone else where their recruiter was like, dude, just get your GED. Yeah. You know, like you, you know you're going to end up in the same spot. In it. So, yeah, that's funny. Also, another thing you made me think about was when I was uh, – when I was in high school, I took like this blow off period where I could just go like stack books in the library and get yeah. credit for it. After Black Hawk Down, the movie came out because I'm a few years younger than you. I was still in high school. I think it was like 01 or 02 that came out. Yeah. I went back in my school library and I dug up all the periodicals from like late 1993 and I went and read all of oh, the wow. like Newsweek, whatever from like you know, October, November, 93. And I like got all like a stack of those and like read through them, you know, eight or so years later. And I think that was a little bit more of an influence uh, for me, especially to like eventually go special forces, that kind of thing. But uh, enough about me. Uh, you, <laughs> so you, you, you join, you join as a ranger. Did you know that second battalion was like, you know, kind of close to home? Yeah, I did. I did some research and uh, I think there was a, there was like one or two kind of informational books on the Ranger Regiment that I, I picked up at the library and, and read. So I knew there was a, a battalion up there. And then um, when I got to to RIP, they uh, they let us like, you know, say what battalion we wanted to go to. But luckily, the demographics of the Army, it's mostly guys from the South or the Midwest. And so everybody was fighting over Savannah going to the beach. And then there's even, yeah. I was surprised, I was surprised. I was like, there was a lot of guys that wanted to stay at Fort Benning and there was only a few of us that were like, man, I want to go to Fort Lewis. So it, it, I don't remember it being very hard. I, remember, I think I initially got like third battalion and then like three or four guys were like, Hey, will you switch with me? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So yeah, I, I lucked out. Yeah. yeah. Who in the right mind would want to stay at Fort Benning then go to like the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, I guess I was just in the RIP class. I had a bunch of kids from Alabama and Georgia that were just like, oh, man, Benning's in a great location. And I was like, yeah, sure, man. Let's uh, let's switch. Yeah, it's funny when you first join the Army, you meet people who have, like, never been on a plane or, like, never left their home state or, like, yeah. you know. Well, for me, it was I don't know what grits are, you know. Yeah, that was the um, same way. So you did a few years there before going to SFAS. You say that you were in SFAS on 9-11, right? I, I was, yeah. So it was like. We had just done the, like you do the PT test at Bragg. And then we went out and we had done some initial event. I think it was either a run or like a time to ruck or whatever. So I was like maybe a day or two into actual Camp McCall selection itself on, on 9-11. Yeah. Sorry, Ben, this is special forces selection. I'm going to try not to throw out There's too many oh, yeah. acronyms here. <laughs> I, try, I, try not every, I try not every episode, but yeah. just slip out sometimes. It's hard. So before I ask you like how the whole world changes someone who was already serving – what were the biggest things that you like got out of Ranger Regiment? Did you get what you wanted? And then did you see it as like a natural progression to go get your Green Beret versus uh, stay stay in the Rangers? Yeah, I mean, there's no better place, in my opinion, 
to start out in the military. I mean, just the uh, the discipline and the combat focus of the Ranger Regiment. And this is in the 90s, so I can't even imagine it now. And they've had two decades of continuous combat. So when I got there, we had a handful of you know senior NCOs that uh, had done Panama. And then we had two or three guys that switched over from 3rd Battalion that uh, had fought in, in Mogadishu itself. And then the Ranger Regiment just had a, a combat mentality. So I learned pretty much how to shoot, move, communicate, and then everything I carried with me throughout the rest of my military career, like be physically fit, like shut your mouth and how, how to become a good, strong NCO and, and what different NCO styles look like. Cause it's, Ranger Regiment just ran on sheer NCO power. So man, I got everything I wanted and more uh, from, from being in Ranger Regiment. And it felt like a pretty natural progression at the time. The Ranger Regiment, especially like in peacetime, they, they, they have kind of the same cycle and the same limited scope of mission, which is, you know, a pretty awesome mission and onto itself. But after I'd been there for a little bit, I was like, okay, I'm going to just try something different. I plan on staying in the military. I really like this. Let's, let's go see. I'd always wanted to be a green beret. And, and uh, my pre nine 11 calculus for that was, Hey, it's going to take like a full on hot war to get the Ranger regiment back in it. But SF guys are always kind of deploying to these like halfway war situations, you know, living out there on the frontier, working with foreign foreign forces. So maybe I got a better chance of, of kind of getting into the mix by, by going to SF, which is funny to say now, because, you know, Ranger Regiment is engaged in some of the bloodiest, hardest, continuous combat there is. So, yeah, that was my, my thought process. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, like many of us, you got your wish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, and, you know, maybe in like a, it's a perverse way to state it, but, uh, you know, I, Listen to some other shows you're on. You said that the instructors at Special Forces Selection started giving you guys newspapers. And like yeah. that just wouldn't that wouldn't happen unless it was serious. Right. What did what did they kind of like impart on you? Did they break character as instructors and were like, hey, look, the world's different? Yeah, they really did. I mean, so I we like I said, we we got there to brag and you know, you did all the, the initial in processing where the, the instructors are doing their their deadpan, just take all instructions off the board. So we had done one or two events and that was kind of the, you know, it was, it was SFAS. The instructors are, they give you zero feedback, but then they brought us into the classroom. I think later on the afternoon on September 11th and the commander came up and he was like, Hey guys, the, the world, the world just changed and America is under attack. And I'm sitting there thinking like, is there like a scenario of some sort for selection? You know, I kind of, I was like, I thought we, I, I thought this was all very cut and dry. Like you take all instructions off the board and there's no, there's no big scenario like there is in other schools or courses. And then they kind of brought in some TVs. And I think we watched a little bit of news and I still was like, I don't know if this is like a game, but then they were like, Hey, if you're from New York or you're from DC or you have family there, like you can hit the pay phones and then we're going to open up the offices. And they brought people out to the offices or out there at Camp McCall. And they're like, you can, you have free reign, use the phones, you know, just, just make touch base with your family and let them know that you're okay and see if, and see if they're okay. Um, so then I was like, wow, this is, something pretty, pretty big, obviously. And then the rest of the course, they kind of got us back on track, but then every day when we were done with whatever event, like when you got to your final point, I remember doing the star course when we got to like our final point, the instructors would kind of break rule and the point sitters, the old guys they had out there, they would have uh, either magazines or newspapers and they would be like, Hey, you guys, you guys need to read this. Cause whenever you leave this little camp McCall world, like it's a whole different universe out there right now. By the time you're hitting a team, had your team already deployed? Are you, you know, the, like the combat experience at this point is still scarce, but uh, 
what's kind of like your initial foray into the wars? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny to say now, but the entire time I was in selection for the rest of that, you know, month or 40 days or whatever it is, I was like, Oh man, I, maybe I just missed the Panama of my generation. That was the one day of war that's going to happen every, you know, five to 10 years. And then almost the same thing in the Q course too. Um, it, it just seemed like at some point we are going to, you know, get our initial strikes in and then pull out kind of like the pattern that we had established in the eighties and the nineties. So there was a big like rush, you know, there was always, you know, there's rumors in the Q course about everything, but there was always rumors that like, Oh, they're going to wave language school because they need guys for all this war that we're going to hit real quick. And, and that didn't happen. And so by the time I got done with the Q course and all that fifth group had already invaded Afghanistan and they had done the ground war. And so <laughs> again, it sounds funny to say now, but I was like, well, I missed it. And I'm like, I'm going to be a joker uh, for the rest of my military <laughs> for the rest of my military career with like no combat. <laughs> but uh, that that got squashed pretty quick. When I, right when I signed into fifth group, they were like, hey, you need to go draw your gear and link up with your team because some of you guys are deploying like within the next week and the rest of you are going to be deploying within the next couple months. That's just the way it is. So I, I got to my first team. And like I said, I was um, I was an E5. So I was the version of the SF baby because there was no SF babies then. And I think everybody on my team, except for like one other guy, had at least two combat deployments. They had done at least the Afghan to push into Afghanistan. Some of them were on different teams and, and didn't get to do a lot. But we had guys that were, you know, some of the men on horseback that were out there dropping bombs on the Taliban, you know, with like a month after September 11th itself. Um, and then the guys that did yeah. the ground and then they went and did the ground war of Iraq. So, yeah, it was a it was a really kind of humbling, but also awesome environment to, to walk into as a brand new Green Beret. Are you initially like splitting your time in both places? Is that what uh, fifth group is doing at this point? No. So fifth group had a big, they did the initial push into Afghanistan and then they pulled them yeah. right out to do the lead up to the ground war. So fifth went from doing unconventional warfare, backs of horses running around of gorillas in the, in the mountains of Afghanistan to jumping right back into the mission that they have been training for since really uh, 91, since Desert Storm, which was mounted special reconnaissance. So slapped guys back in Humvees and went and did that whole gig. And then they occupied different team houses in Iraq. And you had everything from guys that were working with um, like a unilateral direct action type of mission. So just go out and find bad guys and whack them or arrest them all the way to guys that were working in civilian clothes and with indigenous forces and collecting information and kind of doing the more classic SF mission. So when I got there, I went to a team that was tasked with doing uh, direct action. So that was, that was a nice transition coming out of Ranger Regiment. Do you like that? I, I found that like SF can be kind of like a choose your own adventure uh, yeah. type of thing. And it's like when, when I showed up another kind of medic who was senior to me uh, in my company, it was like, be, be good enough at everything, but like pick the one or two things that are your thing. Okay. And then yeah. you can kind of like guide, guide your own path and turn this journey into like something you can enjoy, not just where you're assigned. So yeah. what, what kind of stuff did you find yourself gravitating towards? So, yeah, man, like you said, SF is a very much choose your own adventure type of uh, type of game. It's not cut and dry like a lot of other places. So we went over there, we were tasked with unilateral direct action, which I thought was awesome coming out of Ranger Regiment because I was a new guy and I didn't want to like screw stuff up. And I was like, okay, I feel confident 
kicking indoors and, you know, kicking ass and taking names, that type of thing. Yeah. And my team, my team sergeant had a heavy uh, direct action background as well. So we did unilateral direct action probably for the first three months, uh, got to do, you know, all, all that, all of that entails doing, you know, ground assaults, getting the fast rope out of helicopters in combat, which I was like, man, I never thought I was ever going to do this stuff, but I thought that was a blast. However, what I found, I was like, you know, it seems like in this, this war that we're fighting going out and actually getting the bad guys. It's not the hard part. Like it can get dangerous obviously, cause we're, we're getting in, into fights inside of, you know, seven foot rooms and stuff like that. But it's not really all that difficult. Once we locate the enemy and we, and we put them in time and space, like we win, whether or not the most top tier special ops unit goes after them or the Kentucky national guard just surrounds them and, you know, shoots the ever living crap out of them. So yes. I, I, I kind of got really fascinated with, where does intelligence come from? Like how, like what, what puts me and my ODA on a helicopter to go out to that, that place where we painted the X to go kick some ass. So that was kind of the the direction that my career took. And that was mostly because at about the three month mark of doing unilateral direct action, um, this is at the time when the U S government was trying to install a, a viable Iraqi government. So one of the first steps there was to create the Iraqi military. The first step of that was creating like an Iraqi commando force. And so my ODA and another ODA got sent to go do essentially demobilize a bunch of anti-Saddam militias and then cobble them together as the Iraqi commando battalion, which eventually became the Iraqi special operations battalions. So it was an awesome experience because we put them through like an initial basic training, but then we worked in split teams. So we took four guys each. So there was four different locations that had four green berets and uh, different parts of Baghdad. And we all had about a company plus worth of Iraqis that we had literally just cobbled together. And we started collecting our own intelligence. We were living in little houses uh, in the city on these little compounds of our Iraqi soldiers. We started collecting our own intelligence based on the Iraqis that we had there who could go out and find us informants. And then we just began actioning our own targets. So it was all very organic. So I that's kind of the set me on the trajectory. Cause I was like, man, if we work with Iraqis, we can go and ha- use them to put feelers out within the community. And we can really paint the picture of what's going on in different parts of the city, different parts of the country. We can know key people to go take off the battlefield. That's sort of the way I, my, my career went after that. Well, I think when I first showed up, it was, it was much of the direct action on my first team. And then, you know, at some point I actually got to do like the core SF mission, which is the stuff that you read about and hear about in the Vietnam. You yeah. Know, uh, you know, working through the indigenous people. And then, and then one day I'm standing there with one other teammate and like a hundred Afghans. And I'm like, holy shit, you know, like we're the only two Americans around right now. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. I, I really hope we, I really hope we train these guys well and they like us. Yeah. Um, and then the thing that you said about direct action is exciting and it's, it's uh, dangerous, but there's like, there's more to winning a war. Um, maybe think sometimes I like to break things apart into thinking of, you know, hard and easy or different from simple and complex. Something could be hard and hard and simple and hard and complex. Like running a marathon is hard and simple, right? (laughs) Yeah. Just keep moving, move, keep moving your feet. Uh, and something could be easy and complex if it just has a lot of steps. Are you guys still there? All right. We're gone. All right. Before we lagged out, I was heading on some incredible tangent that I couldn't even keep up with. (laughs) <laughs> but all that all that is to say is that at some point I know that you chose to become an intel sergeant. Did someone like 
mentor you into this decision? Is this something that you picked up along the way? Or were you always kind of like thinking about the bigger picture uh, even before this? Yeah. So uh, I, I got really fascinated in, in how we could find our own targets first and foremost, because like you said, direct, direct action is a lot of fun. So I kind of got frustrated like with just waiting for this mystical intelligence to appear from higher to let us go out and do direct action. So I was kind of like, Hey, if we collect our own Intel, we get to go do more targets and doing targets is great. You know, it's, it's what we, it's what we want to do. It's the high adrenaline stuff, but then kind of as the war drug on. So onto my, I think second deployment, um, we threw even more ODAs at running the, the commandos. So we are on a three ODA task force um, with an entire commando battalion. So I was, working and, and training a company of uh, Iraqi commandos myself. But then also when my company was on down cycle, I'd go augment the, uh, the other teams, uh, either reconnaissance efforts or their warrant and their Fox were kind of working a bunch of local informants in the area to kind of paint out the Intel picture. And I had a really influential, pretty badass warrant officer that was just kind of like pretty much doing his own thing is, is what it appeared but the guy was running countless informants and mapping out like the network of the entire like Mahdi army in Iraq and in, in Baghdad and in Najaf. And the work that he did pretty much put us out on target every night. And so I was just like, this dude is the man, like him and his, and him and his turp and his like wall of cell phones. He's running this thing off of are helping to really paint the picture of what's going on and making us actually effective on the ground. And, you know, I could see that we we're actually making progress that really, really inspired me to, you know, go to the schools that let you go, learn how to work with informants and then eventually become a uh, SF Intel sergeant and then way down the road, a, an SF warrant. Yeah. It's special that uh, an SF team has that organic capability that, you know, we designate one of our own to, to be the intelligence driver rather than waiting for it. I think that's like a huge advantage that we have. Yeah. So that, that's kind of what, you know, put me on the pretty much the career path for the rest of my career. I mean, just seeing that there was guys on the team that were mapping out all the Intel for us and not relying on anybody else that, that kind of made our team self-sufficient. This was, I think, before before the era of putting a lot of intelligence enablers on teams with like whiz bang gadgets. It was literally just, you know, a handful of guys that were paying off informants and keeping their ear to the ground and really knowing their their operational environment. So when you transition to be a warrant officer, you're still pretty heavily involved in the intel scheme on the team, right? Yeah, that's what I really liked. I mean, because Iraq got, uh, I'm sorry, fifth group got put in this groove where we'd pretty much go back to Iraq every year, probably from like 03 until we pulled out the first time in 2011. So I, I thought it was really cool that the warrants got to like stay on a team. They were usually the guys that had the most deployment. They kind of understood what was going on big picture and they could make that relatable down to the down to the teams to give the teams and even the team leadership, like the captains and the team surgeons who might have moved around and done some other stuff like a, like a no shit, like, Hey, this is what's important here. We don't need to chase low hanging fruit. Here's, here's our, our big milestones for where the war is at and what we can accomplish on the ODA level. So that was kind of what, what made me want to go warrant. And then what, you know, made me fall in love with that, that job and that role on the team. So Ben, a warrant officer is like kind of uh, in between enlisted and officer. It's like a, an enlisted person who's a little bit senior who wants to like transition into like an officer type of role, but without going to like officer candidate school and becoming like a lieutenant. It's kind of like this uh, gray in between rank structure. But so I'll say two things about it in SF and you tell me if these are these stereotypes are accurate. So I'll say one, um, the warrant officer corps adds great like continuity within the SF you know, teams, companies, battalions, 
but also from an individual basis, being a warrant is like being Peter Pan because you never have to leave a team. That's exactly right. I was just about to say that it's uh, it resets your team time. And if you don't want to do something like go work at the schoolhouse or go work at battalion, like it's, man, I mean, I had, I had, I, I got a fair amount of team time just by switching over to 18 Fox and then switching to warrant. So staying as a moving target kind of kept me on a team. I have a buddy who's a warrant instructor. He's all about this. All oh, the warrants are the backbone of SF. You know, it's all this continuity, all this institutional knowledge. It never leaves. I'll probably just edit his name out, but uh, I don't know if you knew him. <laughs> that was the best gig for me. So I got to stay on the team. I had to move teams a little bit because SF added another battalion and all that, but it kept me at the team level. And I, I think it, it really kept me grounded and I got to have a lot of really awesome experiences just staying on an ODA. And, and another part of it that's really cool is you, you get to mentor uh, captains because I think a lot of times in SF, we just throw our officers to the wolves. You know, they're, they're a little, they, they've got a little bit of, you know, seasoning on them because they had to go be a platoon leader somewhere else before they can even go to the Q course. But we just, I think we tend to just say, Hey, you're, you're the team leader now and the major is going to yell at you. And maybe if you don't screw it up, like your team is going to like you and they get like 18 months, maybe it's like, no, nobody ever really tells the poor guys anything unless they got like a really good team sergeant. So I, I thought it was kind of cool to be able to, kind of put things into context for the captains. Like, here's what the guys are doing. Here's why they're doing it. Here's, here's the help that we can actually give them, you know, with the hope of, you know, that they would maybe be a good team leader, but even if they weren't going to be a great team leader right then, that when they became a major and they became a company commander, they would really understand like what their role is and, and kind of like what teams actually do. So as someone with like just a ton of time on a team and uh, you know, I don't know how many deployments, you have, but I'm certain from, you know, 2001 to when you got out a couple of years ago, what have you seen as the biggest changes over the past 20 years? Well, I mean, SF is a victim of their own success, I think, uh, because the way the, the GWAT was, the, the skill set that special forces brought to the, the table, it made, uh, I think, senior level commanders and policymakers want more cowbell so really early on, at the time, we were already spread like super thin. We were sitting about, I think, eight guys on each team. Each company was usually usually had a ghost team that just like didn't exist. And then I think somewhere around, I think we first heard about it like late 06, maybe 07. They were like, hey, they're going to stand up a whole nother battalion in every group. And I think all of us were like, we can't even fill the teams here. Like, what are you talking about? That's going to be, that's not going to work. But then somehow they, they got us enough bodies, which a lot of guys get really hung up on. I mean, I never worked as a, as a SFAS instructor or a Q course instructor. So I, I can't like authoritatively say that, Oh my God, it got easier or that there's this point where they switched the standards. I just think there was a lot more pressure to pump guys through the course. And even though I think we were getting a lot of really good guys, I don't think we had the, the leadership to really absorb them into the ranks. Like if I just contrast like, some of the teams that I was on when I was a warrant, how junior a lot of my NCOs were compared to when I was a brand new E5 and I walked in the team room that I had guys that had like been in the, in the regular army for, I don't know, five, six to 10 years. And then they had like, you know, five or six years in SF and I was brand new, just there to absorb. And they only, and they, and that my ODA only had to absorb me, you know? And so it was like all this mentorship that I got as a brand new guy. And then when you slam that many dudes through, even if you have the most righteous process to, to test them and to give them an initial training, what's lacking is that uh, ecosystem of like senior seasoned NCOs to really give them the mentorship they need. So 
I, I feel like it's getting in a more healthier place now just because thanks to the wars and the combat experience, we're kind of maturing the force faster. But the biggest change I've seen is just the, the force is younger, which isn't a bad thing because then longevity wise, you get, you know, you guys stay around longer. But I think just the size of, of special forces, I don't know. I don't know how you get around it because there's a demand, but the size just, we, we just grew way too fast, I think. But again, I don't know what the, I don't, I don't know what the right answer is because there was a demand for it. So what do you do? How about what you've seen over the broader conflict versus your, your early experiences to going into like the late teens creeping up on 2020? Like if you try to tie your last deployment to your first deployment, what are the biggest things that look different or feel different to you? I think, uh, I mean, like at the team, at the tactical level, I mean, I guess we can talk like strategic picture with later on, but at the team tactical level, I, I think earlier on, we had way more autonomy down on the, the ODA level. Um, conductivity and technology that developed to give teams more ability to communicate with higher. There's a sweet spot there where you want to be able to have it so you can push, push and pull resources. But then there's also a point where you have so much conductivity that it just becomes micromanaging oversight. So, I mean, my, my first deployment that we talked about when we were out in split teams living in a team house of four other guys, like there was no con op. Like we, we would tell each other where we were going and we'd take radios or cell phones and we'd go out and we'd conduct business. You know, we, we at the, you know, like E6 staff sergeant level would go coordinate with like if there was a battle space owner in the area, we'd put on civilian clothes so they didn't know that we were, you know, <laughs> basically junior enlisted going to talk to a, you know, a colonel or a major and, and just kind of tell them what we were doing. It was all very informal. And that let us move at a really fast pace later on in the war, man, when we started getting the secure phones and then the secure constant emails, the uh, ability to constantly email with each other and VTCs. Oh my God, man, we started getting VTCs in, in, in team rooms and forward deployed locations. It just slowed things down. And, and, and there was a feeling sometimes depending on the leadership that, the teams were really there kind of supporting and, and operating for the sake of hire, which is completely backwards. But, you know, I, I would tell guys on, you know, my old guy stories later on, I'd be like, man, we didn't, we didn't used to fill out con up slides. We'd, we'd like write on the whiteboard where we were going and what our phone number was. And we'd go out and recon targets. If we saw the guy in the street, if we saw the guy in the street, we'd snatch him up, man. Like, you know, I'd tell my team leaders, my, my captains that, and they'd be like, yeah, great story, Joe. I have to do a 30 page con op so we can, drive to go to a resupply like <laughs> so I, I i think that i think that changed a lot and, and probably not for the not for the better do you think that's indicative of like the broader strategic implication or i mean we don't have to wait till later to talk about that if you have if you have thoughts about that yeah i mean i, I think just after a while that we we kind of hit diminishing returns as to what we were actually doing over there i mean we we went over to Afghanistan to go strike out and take out Al Qaeda and then quickly switched over to that nation building model. And then there was the whole lies that Iraq, the Iraq war was sold on. So I, I think there's been a good deal of, and this isn't on the military, this is on our, our political leadership, but there's always been this, Hey, so what are we doing over here? You know, what are we, what are we going after? What are we trying to accomplish? And at some point that becomes its own like self-looking ice cream cone to a certain extent. And you're kind of doing operations for the sake of doing operations, unfortunately, you know, I mean, on the, on the team level, on the, you know, the guy level, you want to go out there and you want to kick some ass and, and, and ply your trade, which is very honorable. And that's what we should be doing. But 
I think we are lacking a lot of strategic leadership, um, sometimes from higher up in the military, but in general, I just think that the civilian leadership at the executive and legislative level, and then the, the U.S. public's interest in the wars has just been absolutely, I think, you know, AWOL for lack of a better term. It's strange when you have to like grow up and start thinking about that stuff. You know, when I first joined the army or when I first got to SF, I just, I wanted to be able to play GI Joe. I want to go shoot, blow stuff up, get in, get in fights with people. And it's like, I kind of just wanted, I wanted that experience in my life. Yep. The strategic goals of the conflict were secondary to that. And I didn't pay much attention. And, And you know, you know that, you know, most soldiers, don't really get into that in the moment. They're just there to do their job uh, and they find it exciting and they, they want to do it. They want that opportunity. Um, But you know, afterwards, after you separate or after you grow up, you kind of start taking this other look at it. And, uh, and I know that you're pretty vocal, vocal about some of that other stuff too. Yeah. I think that's the double-edged sword of having a highly professionalized military. I mean, if, the good, the good part of having a, a professional military is that everybody wants to be there. And then you, the closer you get to the, the pointy edge of that in combat arms and then in special operations, we're, you know, we're essentially pro athletes, man. We, we want to go to game day. So it takes a, I think yeah. it take to have, to responsibly have a professional military that's all volunteer. You have to have a really, really aware public and a really actively engaged national level leadership that knows exactly why we're putting these these prize fighters our soldiers to go apply that task the second that that it's it's wishy-washy and there's no clear objectives then the military is just gonna i mean we're gonna do what we do like we're gonna go apply our trade until you pull us out and if we're there we're gonna do everything we can to go use all the tools in our toolbox and i think that's kind of gotten off the rails for the last decade plus Hey, this is Matt. We usually do some promos during this break, but instead I wanted to just set up our next segment. I mentioned during the intro that Joe is a gold star husband. His wife, Senior Chief Petty Officer Shannon Kent, was a U.S. Navy cryptologist who served and deployed from the early 2000s until she was killed in action in January 2019 in Manbij, Syria. Shannon was regarded as incredibly capable in her field and served at an elite level within special operations. She'll be remembered as a warrior. Before we get into some of that other, the uh, the life after the military, I, I really don't know that there's like an easy way for me to get into this topic, but uh, I know it's, it's incredibly important. Um, your wife doesn't have the chance to tell her own story of service. Uh, yeah. Do you want to give it a shot? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, so yeah, I met my wife when we were both serving at a uh, pretty high level special operations unit, um, but that wasn't her her first rodeo and she wasn't uh, killed in her first rodeo either. So Shannon joined the military like right after nine 11. So she's a New Yorker. Her dad's a uh, New York city state trooper. Her uncle's a New York city uh, firefighter and they're both responders to, to ground zero. So Shannon had just started college then. And that, that, that event, the attacks nine 11 inspired her to go down to the recruiters and say, Hey, I know I can learn Arabic. I know I can learn these languages. She, self-taught Spanish, self-taught French when she was in high school. So she knew that she had that ear. Um, so her recruiter story is kind of funny because she went to the the army and, and I think the Marines and the air force. And they were like, well, you scored really high on the, the language aptitude test. We think you should learn Chinese. And Shannon was like, no, this is, 
I want to go learn Arabic because that's who attacked the towers. And the Navy was the first first branch of the service that put it in writing and said, like, okay, Arabic. So she joined the Navy, went to uh, Defense Language Institute down in Monterey, did the the 18 month uh, intensive program they have to learn Arabic. And then then after that, she did what Shannon does. And, and she just volunteered to go on the first first deployment she could find. And that actually ended up being a uh, augmentation to Naval Special Warfare, who was running part of the um, the Special Operations Task Force there. So she she started out her career in combat and just intercepting enemy signals intelligence, so cell phones and radios and all that, and then translating it. But once she got into, into theater, she just kept volunteering to get closer to the fight. And so she eventually found herself down in Baghdad doing a combination of SIGINT and then all source analysis. And she kind of had it. She, she picked up a knack for the Iraqi dialect and she got an opportunity to go start meeting with local Iraqis to gather intelligence. And one of the SEALs that she worked for, a, a SEAL commander was like, Hey, we just started this, this new concept called the, I forgot what they called it at the time. It's like a, cr- a cross-functional team where you take SEALs and you bring in intelligence operators to help gather intelligence kind of at the ground level. And so he invited her to come try out for it. So she was in one of the first classes. Once she got back from that deployment and back to Virginia beach, she was in one of the first classes where they let women go to selection to be a direct support intelligence operator for the SEALs. And she passed that selection, went back to Iraq. Actually, we briefly met each other there um, in 07 in Baghdad. I went to a briefing that she was giving on uh, on where some bad guys were. But that was like a real brief 10-minute hmm. encounter. And so then she did uh, – I think two more, yeah, two more deployments of NSW to Iraq, and then she went over to Afghanistan for the surge and lived at a, uh, a village stability site. So lived in an Afghan village and worked on the same the same thing. She was collecting intelligence from local informants, and then she went to selection for the special operations unit that we ended up in together. And then we ended up in that uh, that training pipeline course together. And that's how we yeah. that's how we that's how we met. So did to just join the military and say like yeah. hey teach me Arabic. I'm going to get in the fight. I know I can do this. Yeah, pretty much. So she, uh, she grew up, um, working in horse stables. Um, there's like a big horse stable or a horse, I'm not, I'm, I don't know if I'm saying right. there's a polo community just outside of New York city that a lot of, I think well-off people from the city go and the, the polo community has a lot of uh, people from Argentina in it. And so she grew up working in the horse stables and talking of stable hands she learned the Argentinian dialect. She did an exchange program when she was in high school down in Argentina. So she picked up Argentinian Spanish really quick. And then her, she found that her high school class was going to France. And if she, if she learned French, she could go with them. So she self-taught her, she taught herself French good enough to go on that trip. And so she, so when nine 11 happened, she was like, okay, I've learned two languages. I can learn Arabic. Like that was just Shannon's mentality of like, Hey, what can I do? Send me, put me in coach. So that was that was what put her on her her trajectory. And then she wanted to pile on some other skills too to get even closer to the fight. You said right? Yeah. So she she kind of um, well she learned how to steal enemy signals like with cell phones and radios and all that. She was a cryptologist by trade. But to get even closer to the fight, she she knew that she had a knack to, for going out and talking to people. Um, so she volunteered to go go down and actually like start working with Iraqi informants, which. I think at the time, really just SF guys were doing, and obviously the intelligence community, but in soft, that was kind of an SF thing. But I think by that phase of the war, like 07 timeframe, I think the SEALs were starting to get into that. I just remember the SEALs for a while, they were just a strike force. They were doing unilateral DA. But I think around that timeframe, they were like, hey, we need to start doing more of, you know, getting out, working with the Iraqis, 
it'll get us more business, kind of like what the what the SF guys are doing. So she she jumped in on that because at the time I don't think there was a lot of seals that were like, okay, yeah, I want to go listen to these Iraqis and hear what they have to say. So she she capitalized on that and got closer to the fight by by using her language skills. We've talked to some female vets on the podcast and they talk about this like invisibility of the female veteran and that our women who we've sent to combat over the last 20 years or so, even before that, we just talked to Karen Gallagher who's in Desert Storm. They don't get the kind of recognition, but I mean, you know, firsthand from working with other women and then your wife being such an accomplished and uh, influential force. I mean, you know, the truth behind that, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, I, yeah. I think it, it's, in, I mean, you know, before she was killed, whenever we, we'd go anywhere and there was any kind of like, Hey, you're in the military. Like no, it, nobody ever like acknowledged her as being in the military unless I introduced and said, yeah, my wife's also in the military. And they, and I think a lot of them, even people that we knew in our personal lives, they, they didn't know what Shannon was doing. They, they knew, like, Oh, Joe's a green beret. Like, okay, that's badass. Like Joe's out there slitting throats every day not knowing what Shannon was doing, which is the, it, it, the way it's supposed to be. But it was just uh, after she was killed, I've, I've had a, a lot of, um, I think females, you know, reach out to me and just say that they're inspired by Shannon's story. And, and I, that's one of the many reasons I like telling it and talking about her and I'm writing a book about her is, you know, first and foremost, it's for, for me, because it's kind of cathartic, but then also for my kids. So they have something to read later on in life when they, they want a more detailed explanation of who their mom is. But then also, I mean, I really think that uh, women and then I think our uh, interpreters are kind of the, the unsung heroes of of the GWAT because there's there's been women out there since day one of the GWAT just getting after it, but not in like a codified way. They all had to do kind of what Shannon did and, and kind of like work their way in and then they still usually weren't, weren't acknowledged. So I, I enjoy telling her story just just because there's. I just think a lot of women out there that never really got the, the acknowledge the, the attaboy and thank you for your service. Like, like us got, you know, the guys got. And uh, it's kind of like you started off doing the direct action door kicking type stuff and you were attracted to the intelligence side because you know how much of an enabler that can be. Yeah. Uh, and here your wife is specializing in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And she was always, it's funny cause she, you know, she had been in the community for so long as, either an invisible, an invisible female or always defined as like an enabler or like, yeah, oh, you're kind of support or whatever. And so she would always be like, oh, everybody, you know, they, they're, they're attracted to like, oh, the, the guy that's the green beret or the seal or whatever, you know? And I'm like, yeah, but there's a, there's a bunch of us, man. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of like from central casting, whereas you who speak like seven languages <laughs> and can yeah. define ones and zeros from sig- signals intelligence, like you're the actual, you're the true elite person here even though no one sees that just because of, you know, the, the merit badges we wear in the military or the headgear, you know. I know that uh, on your social media, it says 16 January 19. So I know that your, uh, your whole world changed after that. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't really want to kind of like dig into your own personal thing, but I know that uh, from watching you on social media too, one huge thing that changed is that, you know, you have two kids at home and now you're this, you're the sole, uh, parent. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't even know, like a good way to ask, like how, how does your world change at that point? Yeah, man. So I, um, being a Peter Pan warrant officer, I did not really transition out of the military. I, I got a job and it's very similar to what we used to do in the intelligence community. And so I, 
whenever anybody would talk about transition, I would just be like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. You know, I just didn't take it seriously. I, I, I had this career path lined out where I would start another career in the intelligence world. And I got to continue to play commando and be a badass. So that was the plan. And I was lucky yeah. enough to, to marry someone like Shannon, who was going to be part of that adventure. But, but more, first and foremost, like she really supported me doing that. Um, so after she was killed, I, uh, I was actually overseas on a shorter deployment. Our, our kids were with my parents. And so I was actually outside the wire doing not super dangerous stuff, but I was in danger the same day that she got killed. And so right after she got killed, I was like, well, I just put my kids in a position where they could have become orphans. So I, I gotta, I gotta grow up and, and uh, get away from, from this line of work totally. And I, and I knew I kind of needed, I knew my personality well enough to know that like I needed to, kind of hard cut that off. I knew if I tried to stay like in the intelligence community that it would eventually kind of suck me back in. Like I think Las Vegas is where you go to is where you shouldn't go if you're a gambling addict. And if you're a workaholic, like you should stay away from DC. So I, I got away from there kind of as soon as I could resign from uh, the intelligence community, moved back here to the Northwest to get my kids closer to my family. And uh, I mean, losing Shannon is definitely the hardest thing I've ever been through. And then I'd say the second hardest thing has been transitioning away from, you know, kind of everything that was my identity and my, my tribe. It's, everyone's super supportive, but you know, it's just a, having a hard, a hard rapid break like that has been, uh, it's been, it's been weird. <laughs> not gonna, not gonna lie, man. It's, uh, you know, you didn't choose your exit point. Yeah, exactly. There was no, not much of a choice there. So, what do you do when you find out that you're forced to make a pretty strong career shift, right? It's like yeah. the thing you not only love doing, but we're good at. <laughs> yeah. And the, th- the thing that, the thing that, you know, people want you for, yeah. um, is no, lo- no longer on the table. What do you do? You know, it's been really weird, man. And, and this is just a weird time for our country in general. So I, uh, I, I didn't have a good answer for that. I was lucky enough to be able to, you know, find a, I could find a job. So I didn't have to worry about any of the big, the big issues of paying bills and yeah. any, any of that stuff. But I was kind of wondering, you know, what was next, but uh, I, I think just the trajectory of our, our country kind of answered that question to me that I didn't need to necessarily be overseas with a gun in my hand to make a difference back home. So I, um, you know, Shannon was killed at a really, controversial time. She was killed when Trump was trying to get our troops out of Syria, which I completely agreed with based on the conditions on the ground. Yeah. And then, and then his effort to end endless wars. So I kind of use that as, Hey, I can contribute something here. Um, now that I'm not on the inside, I can speak out and, and speak my mind and, and explain to people what I've seen in the last 20 years and why, what he's doing is right. So that's, that kind of started the the trajectory that I'm on right now was watching Trump attempt to attempt to get troops out of Syria and then watch the, the establishment of the, the U S military and the DOD and the state department really turn against him and watching the, the ugly side of the establishment and the military industrial complex try and really fight back against that. So started speaking out. And then from there, I mean, the, the world didn't slow down. Then we hit, you know, this last year of the riots and COVID lockdowns and then everything that's happened since then. So it's kind of put me on giving me more of a, I think that, you know, domestic focus, obviously, but wanting to really contribute in serving our country today in the here and now at the local level. Do you think people would find it ironic that uh, we have a bunch of soldiers or former soldiers now speaking out against the forever wars? Like, hey, like, you know, 
it might have been fun for a while, but uh, we need to get out of this shit. Yeah, I mean, I in a in a very frustrated way, I, I laugh at it because I'm like, you know, there's countless veterans. You know, I don't want to speak for everybody. Veterans aren't monolithic, but I mean, most of the guys I know and, and talk to, it, we were pretty blunt about it. Like, hey, we haven't really accomplished a lot over there in a while. It's not much of a reason for us to have this continued posture over there. But then, but then the people that that tell us pretty much to uh, sit down and shut up in color. It's, it's a bunch of academics and a bunch of people at think tanks, or it's a bunch of general officers that were already high ranking when the war started. And now they're working. Now they rotate between think tanks and working on the, the board. At, mm. You know, I, I, it's funny in a really sick, illuminating way of how the, the establishment and government really works. You're running for Congress for Washington third district, which is down in the Southwest, uh, probably the closest district to Portland. It is. Yep. Um, in, in Washington, when does running for office start to become a reality for you? Do you have people that are influencing you? Like, what are the steps? Where do you even start? Uh, so <laughs> I'm building the airplane in flight. So I, uh, you know, got a website together and made my announcement. I did my FEC filings a little bit before that. So I had a couple friends that had ran for office before that I reached out to and talked to just to get their, you know, once over the world, how to not go to jail with campaign money is the big thing. Okay. That's good. But other than that, man, I kind of went off the FEC website, you know, it's sort of like that old cartoon we watched when we were kids, like how a bill becomes a law. I was just like sitting there like, okay, you do your FEC page one, then your page two, then then you're (laughs) you're a candidate, then you announce and then you start giving people your, your, uh, your pitch and and asking them to, to support you and telling them your platform. So that's kind of where I'm at right now is trying to just reach as many people uh, in my district as I can and tell them, hey, here's me. Here's why I'm running right now. And here's what I want to do if elected to Congress. How do you start building like your support structure around you? I mean, are you are you reaching out to people for advice or, or people who've done it before? Or the, is there like a you know, consulting business for this or uh, yeah. or you, can you can you actually can you actually make a run being like a grassroots guy? Yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I I haven't had anybody offer me a ton of money yet, so I think I'm still very much a grassroots guy. So I'm still relying on you know individual donations, which is pretty much the way I I, I want to keep it. Um, I want to keep this as pure as we possibly can because I'm trying to fight back against the status quo of career politicians. So right now, basically, I'm just trying to get my name out as much as I possibly can. So I've been going to different Republican events. There's a good deal of, I think I'd say enthusiasm to get rid of some of the status quo candidates who haven't been serving their people the way that they're supposed to, that have just been in power too long. And the, uh, the impeachment vote just kind of was the straw that broke the Campbell's back and really, really brought to light a lot of the, I think, establishment from the Republican party. So I've been doing as much as I can to talk to as many people as I can, just to hear from them, like what their issues are, just so I can attempt attempt to build my campaign on the needs of the people. I guess to ask like kind of just a civics question, difference between like mayors, governors, senators, representatives, if you're running as a representative, is your like ultimate goal to just represent the people of that area? Or are you kind of saying this is who I am? If you subscribe to what I believe in, then we'll do a good job. Or are yeah. you just the conduit from your people to DC? Yeah, so I'm I'm a conduit for the America First movement. So I would say the the Trump wing of the Republican Party that's a populist America First nationalist movement. So trying to gut out a lot of the career politicians on our end. I don't 
I would love to win over people from the left. I'm happy to talk to anybody. I just I'm going against a establishment Republican. So that's that is the the platform that I'm running on. So I want to hear from people and hear what their issues are and how I can best serve them. I just things are so partisan right now that I don't know who could come in right now and, and say like, hey, I'm just this pure clean guy that wants to just represent, you know, a hundred percent of my district because there's my district's pretty pretty diverse. Uh, it's fairly rural, yeah. but we have we have one population center that's really close to Portland that's becoming more more, I'd say it's still red, but there's some purple there as well. And then there's a huge division too within the Republican Party on on how the Republican Party goes forward. So yeah, I'm pretty much brutally honest about about who I am and, and what I represent and what I want to do. So that's the platform. Is it hard nowadays? It seems like you would probably get a lot of flack. It seems like anyone running for politics would get a lot of flack, but you know, you probably have a lot more to deal with in the year following 2020. Uh, yeah, I mean, my district is is pretty red, and they went pretty heavily for Trump, benefited from Trump's policies. So yeah, I've gotten a ton of support, and I think there's just an appetite right now across the board on both sides of the aisle for genuine politicians or not career, but not career politicians, but genuine candidates to come forward and say, Hey, I want to participate in government. Um, I'm not a highly polished, you know, groomed person who, who's always wanted to go into politics. I've been somewhere else in life. I have other experience and now I want to serve in the government. I think there's, I think there's an appetite for that because I've just getting out and talking to as many people as I can on, on my end, it's frustration with the Republican party. But I think I think that exists across the board. I think people are sick of the establishment and the status quo. We now realize because of, I think, just technology and social media and there being more information out there that if we kind of organize and band together, like we actually can make a difference. I thought I saw that you posted something about your grandfather being in politics or being elected. Yeah. Is yeah, that true? Yeah. And then how, how, how long is this? Has the thought maybe even been there subconsciously like, hey, I could do this someday? Yeah. So I, I knew my grandfather, he died when my dad was 14. So I never met him, but he was a original Republican down in Richmond, Virginia, back in the day when the Republicans were fighting against segregation, against the, against the Democrats and the Dixiecrat movement. So he was, he was one of those guys. He was part of the, the Goldwater tradition, which gold Reagan said Goldwater influenced him and, and Trump's a big Reagan guy. So I think the, the populist movement kind of started there with him. So it's, it's really cool to see that we have that that that's actually in my blood. So my dad brought that up to me when I gave him one of my uh, congressional business cards. He's like, Oh, I got to find your grandfather's. And so he found that and I posted that and he's got, he's got the GOP elephant on his, uh, on his head down there in Richmond. So it's kind of a cool family tradition. Yeah. But uh-huh. I, had, I had, I had never thought of running for elected office before, you know, I thought as the, as we approached the 2020 election, I, I had talked with some people in the Trump administration about coming back and working at a, you know, some capacity, uh, in the national security realm. And so that kind of appealed to me just because of, you know, my background, well, like as a political appointee, but I had never considered doing what I'm doing right now, just because I was like, man, you gotta, you have to go ask people for money and, and, you know, do all, all those things that we don't like about politicians. You kind of have to become that. So I, I didn't think about, I didn't seriously consider becoming a politician up until three weeks ago, really. Oh, wow. all right. <laughs> yeah. Where, uh, so what are you still building out? What do, what do you have to, uh, if this is, if this is like a Rocky montage, where, where are your training sessions? Are you, uh, are you, are you, 
You're just <laughs> figuring out. I mean, you probably have uh, foreign policy and defense. That's probably a, you know a spike for you. Yeah. Um, w- yeah. What other What other things do you have to start like getting into? I feel like if I was a politician, I would have to. I would just have to start like reading everything and, and being able to have a conversation about like so many different topics just so somebody, you know, I would never think that somebody was knocking me off my game. Right. That's exactly it, man. It, it, this is, this really reminds me of being a kind of a brand new SF guy when you get there and you're like, wait, wait, what are the SF missions and how am I supposed to be good at all of them when they're so different? So it, it's, you know, I definitely have my strong suits. Like if people want to talk foreign policy, there was, you know, the, the strikes that just happened in Syria. A couple of people have asked me to weigh in on that. And I'm like, yeah, I got you all day on that one. But, you know, when, when people are talking about the nuances of healthcare plans, and infrastructure bills, I'm, I'm doing a good deal of reading and researching and then reaching out to people that I that I know have dealt with this. And I'm kind of taking the SF model. I've been, I've been going to as many town halls as I possibly can. It's goofy because of COVID, yeah. but Representative Butler, the one I'm, I'm running to primary, voted to impeach President Trump, a bunch of the local Republican organizations are formally censuring her. So some of them have, have let me come to the censure meetings and give my, you know, introduction speech as to who I am and what I want to do. And in going out to those types of events, I've gotten a chance to just have sidebar conversations with people. So I'm, to me, I'm building out my network of people who are not necessarily political operatives of any kind, but they're subject matter experts in, you know, infrastructure, broadband, internet access issues, flooding, timber, fishing stuff that, you know, I, I was aware of, but I just didn't know the finer points of. So that's what, that's kind of the model that I'm, that I'm taking. Yeah. I think that that's another thing I I, I also think about if I were to choose that route is like, I got to have some really solid phone of friends lined up. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and even, even when you think about something like being like president, you know, like there's not one person who can possibly no. do it all. It's about, it's about I, well, this is me personally. I think it's about building the right team. Exactly. Yep. So that's the model I'm trying to take. It's just building out a, building out a diverse team. So wait, we just had elections. We did. So you got a pretty long runway. We do. Yeah. Yeah. So what, so what do the next couple of years look like? Or no, the primary, is the primary close to the general? It, it is. So the primary is in August of uh, 2022 and then the general's in okay. November of 2022. All right. Pretty long road for you. It's a very long one. Yeah. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure it'll go quick though. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we're going to be looking out for you. We're going to be paying close attention to you. Maybe we'll even have another catch up with you. Yeah. It'd be awesome. Before we, uh, before, before we let you go and move on, I want to ask you a question that we ask everyone on the show. Um, yeah. Maybe you know, maybe don't, but you know, after, after everything we've talked about, who do you think you are today if you never served? Man, I, I, I don't even, I, I, I honestly don't even know um, just because I went in so young. I, I think, man, if I, if I had not served, I think I would be very disappointed in myself, to be honest with you, you know, and I, and I think um, I, I know not everybody, I know military service isn't for everybody, but I think, going out and having a goal and, and being a little bit worried about your goal and, and tackling it kind of head on and absorbing some punches and coming out on the other side, I think is, is part of growing up and becoming a, a, a complete person. And for me, the military just gave me so much of that, that man, I, I don't, I don't know what I would do. Um, I don't know what I would do or who I would be without the, all the tools and the experiences that the military gave me. 
Yeah, we had a couple of people say it's just like so core to my being that I can't imagine it. Yeah, I mean, it's like imagine yourself without having a, you know, a limb of your body or something. Like I just, yeah. We, uh, oh, one other thing I heard, you have a cat named Slayer. We have a cat named Slayer. Yeah, are we you, do. Are you, <laughs> so you have a pretty friggin' metal cat, huh? We do, we do. So I've, re- I've rebranded her as Campaign Kitty. Just to you know, make it okay. more, you know friendly for the campaign, but it's she's Slayer, so yeah. Okay, cool. Your uh, your kids like that? Your kids into metal too, or they just think it's a funny name? Oh, they're 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 little metalheads, man. They got their little Metallica shirts, and yeah, they're always headbanging and asking me if you know if their teachers like Metallica, and I'm like, nah, probably not, buddy. You know, <laughs> they're like they're like, why do you like Metallica? And the other people don't, so they they just call it all Metallica. So <laughs> oh, they call. All all metal music, Metallica. They call them, yeah, yeah, it's all Metallica. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, I've got nice. the I've got the oldest, so you can identify like Iron Maiden, just because it's got like a more distinct sound. So, you know, I'm oh, I'm working nice. I'm wor- I'm working on the important stuff here. <laughs> I'm sure they're outside. I'm sure they're outside building like a log cabin for you or something right now. Something destructive. But, uh, yeah. Ben, do you got anything that we didn't cover or any follow ups? No, I mean, any of your past experience. Does any of your past experience help? inform this new stage or is it like a total unknown and it's it's just dealing with these taking this new challenge head on like you spoke about learning and really doing that in the past yeah i mean it it it, kind of yes and no at the same time so there's parts of it that feel completely foreign you know um it's a whole different set of set of skills but at the same time a lot of what we did in special forces was going into different environments with you know, different people that had competing interests and having to put together teams. So a lot of this feels kind of familiar in a really weird way. Like having to file the paperwork, having to ask people for money is super awkward and I'm still getting used to all that. But when I, when I go out and I engage with people, it, it, it feels very similar to, you know, what we, what we did overseas and, and how we were trained in, in special forces because we're, we're force multipliers and in special forces. And so, kind of going back to like one president or one elected official can't have all the answers. So right, right now I'm just trying to figure out what people in the district need and then who in the district I can use as a, as a touch point or, or a bellwether for, for certain issues. So that, that part feels, you know, like a, a pretty natural transition to be honest. Oh, good luck with that journey. Thank you. And as you keep absorbing and, uh, and looking for your building out your team. Yeah. Thank you. Joe, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. This is great to uh, catch up, and best of luck. I hope that you uh, start gaining a little momentum, start figuring out the way ahead. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. All right, brother. Thanks. thanks. Cool. Take care, guys. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Joe representing the people of Southwest Washington State. If you want to learn more, you can check out his website at joekentforcongress.com. As always, thanks for listening. Please subscribe, rate, review, and follow. Join us next time on the show. We didn't do any support reads in the middle of this episode, but everything you need to know about us, you can find online at thankyounowwhat.com. You can find our full catalog of shows and show notes. You can find links to our social media, or you can just go straight over to Twitter or Instagram. Follow us at thankyounowwhat. We have links to contribute to the show, like PayPal and Patreon. Please know that when you join with us in the cost of doing business, you're doing just that. All the money goes into show production, not into our pockets. And then a little bit goes at the end 
to uh, some of the nonprofits that we like to support. And if you're on our website, you can go directly to the nonprofits page and see some of the ones that we've talked about in past episodes. If you're listening on your favorite podcast player, make sure you're subscribed so you get all our latest episodes and maybe even give us a rating if you've got a second. Lastly, if you know someone who may enjoy this or any other episodes, please go ahead and share by word of mouth. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Thank You Now What.